0: Thank you, President Joel. <laughs> for those lovely words. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I and died last night. And I'm just, this is a little bit of, but but all help. You do not acquire terror until you really lay, lay down your life for it. So thank you for teaching me the truth of that sentence Professor President Joel. Friends, may I add my thanks personally. To uh, Rabbi and uh, and Mrs. Arbusfeldt for all you've done to make this whole program possible. Uh, To Robin and Shuki Grossman for sponsoring today, and thank you so very much for that. And uh, to all of you... Who who are the ones from Englewood? Yeah, who are the ones from New Rochelle? I tell you guys, those are two of the most beautiful communities I have ever seen in the world. They are wonderful. And there has only been one delight greater than being in New Rochelle and in Englewood, and that is meeting the students of Yeshiva University. They are just... and the school, and the college, and all the other, sorry, I, I wasn't excluding you, you're definitely included, guys. Um, I have seen, on the faces of the YU students, the face of the Jewish future, and it is smiling. So let us be very, very proud of Yeshiva University, the greatest institution of Torah and Deirah, Heretz, Torah, Torah, and Chochmah in the world. And President Joe, we salute your leadership and we wish you and Yeshiva blessings in the years to come. I want to say a very, very special thank you to my beloved friend, Rabbi J.J. Schachter. Thank you for that wonderful and very moving lecture. And may Hashem send you Nechama in this sad year. And may I say, the one you were speaking. Forgive me if I say this, but I could just feel the presence of your late father, Zechot Sadiq listening to your shiit and shouting nervous. And may we all marry children who walk so beautifully in our ways. Amen. Uh, friends, before I begin, could I... I hope Rabbi Schefter, you'll forgive me if I just add three extremely tiny footnotes written in such small font size that you can't really read them. But if I can just add three little footnotes. And number one, the tension of which you spoke is not only there in the Ramban and the Rav Zatzal; it is the defining tension of Jewish life and we find this set out so clearly in Josephus, when Josephus is talking about the difference between what he saw as the three sects in the late Second Temple Age, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And he says in both his Antiquities and Wars that uh, the Sadducees did not believe in faith. They believed only in choice. History is what we make it. The Essenes did not believe in choice. History is written by God. And we are actors in a play that he has already scripted. The Pharisees are the ones who hold both to fate and to choice. As he puts it in a wonderful uh, metaphor, God is sitting presiding over the council chamber of Fate, but we are admitted into the council chamber, and our voice affects the verdict. So that is a defining tension in Jewish life. I would even argue, but I haven't remotely the time, it's a defining tension in Sefer The second thing is just to defend the Ramban a little bit, because I know the Rav Zatzel would have done so uh, in his Shiurim as well. Uh, The Ramban here, when he says that Avraham al committed a sin for which his children were punished, is not denying free will. The Ramban believed in free will as much as everyone. Maybe Hasbite Kreskes did not believe in free will, but everyone else did. The Ramban is facing a specific textual difficulty. If you read Sefer Bereshi, why did our ancestors go into slavery in Egypt? Anyone know? A plain reading will be a family that can sell one of their members into slavery has to experience being enslaved so that It was to teach us never to mistreat our brothers because if we do, we will all be mistreated. That's the plain way of reading Sefer Bereshit. But it fails to account for one major textual problem in Sefer Bereshi, which is that already in Bereshi's chapter 15, before the birth even of the first Jewish child, Avram is told already, Yadoat eda ki ye gei Now Avram's children have done nothing to deserve that fate. And therefore Ramban has to locate the reason for that Gezerah in the Acts of Abraham himself, in an act prior to chapter 15. So, Ramban also believed in this tension between fate and free will, as Rabbi Sherpa showed us in, uh, in, in the passage of Jacob meeting Esau, and, but it was a very specific textual difficulty he was addressing here. And third, the one thing that perhaps I want to mention is that there are not two shitot here. One emphasizing faith, one emphasizing choice. There's a third shittah, and the Ramban alludes to it, but he doesn't chase it. When he quotes the Midrash, which says, Avram was told, say Ukovosh et hadera, conquer the root. What exactly does that mean? What it means is something else. It means that when Jews, as we all do, face dark times, individually or collectively, we need not fear, because we have been here before. There is nothing that can take Jews by surprise. Even the worst horrors of the Holocaust. Whereas it were, we, we, you open up the extraordinary vision of Ezekiel, seeing the Jewish people reduced to a valley of dry bones, and we know that out of that comes, as Ezekiel said, the return of the Jewish people to Eretz Yisrael. So Jews are the people who never need fear of the future, because whatever the future has to throw at us. We have been here before. And our ancestors were Yotzim the Shim et Aderev. They were the ones who showed us how to get from here to there, from exile to the land and the promise. And that ultimately has to be the superscription of Jewish history. Gam Ki Eileh, Veget Salmavet, Loira Kiyataimadi. I never will face the future alone. The experience of my ancestors and the presence of my and their God will lead me from here to there. Friends, now I come to my ship. Um, here's, here's a problem. Here's a real problem. Chazal <laughs> said, Happy is he who comes with his Torah in his hand. Chassam Sofa defines a Rav as a Hamar nosei sfarib. You're an ass laden with books. What they didn't help me with is what happens if your luggage already exceeds the weight limits <laughs> and you're making your way to the United States. And somehow, Misha Bar the iPad, the Udo, doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> But that's how I came with my Uvaletikova Derek app on my iPad. So all my smarim are locked up in that little thing there, which means I can't do a text based cheer because I haven't worked out how you get from there to my printer. And uh, all I know is Tefillah is our Bluetooth connection with God. That's the only Bluetooth connection I understand. So uh, forgive me. Um, and here we are. Let's, let's begin at the beginning. Or, no, let's begin in the middle. Um, here we are, 1930s, Vienna, coffee house, two Jews are sitting, having coffee, 1933 in Vienna, and one of them is reading the local Jewish newspaper from Vienna, and the other is reading their Sturmer, the notoriously anti-Semitic uh, journal, the rag that was full of libels against the Jews. And the first one turns to the second one and says, How can you read that anti-Semitic drivel? How can you read it? And the second one smiles and looks to the first one and says, When you read the Jewish press, what do you read? Jews are arguing, they're quarreling, they're separating, they're outmarrying, they're assimilating. You only get the bad news. When I read their sturma, what do I read? Jews control the banks, they control the economy, they control the press. If you want the good news, always read the (laughs) anti-Semites. But what I wanted to do, because anti-Semitism has returned, unbelievably, within living memory of the Holocaust, because it has returned today in the Middle East, in parts of Asia, and sadly, but devastatingly, anti-semitism has returned to Europe I believe that this subject of Megillat Esther is of immense contemporary relevance and I just want to talk you through it because what we have in Megillat Esther is perhaps the first recorded incident of a declaration of a verbal statement of a phenomenon without parallel in human history, the world's oldest hatred, anti-Semitism, and it—we hear it in Haman's words: "Yeshno Amechad, Mufuzah mforad, Ben Oanim Shonot Mikolam." There is a unique people, scattered and dispersed through all the realms of Your Majesty's realm. And their laws are different from anyone else. And therefore, since they're different and since they don't accept the king's laws, issue a decree, the first warrant for genocide La Shmid, La Harog, Ula Abed, Et Minava Ad Zaken, the chilling ones destroy, to obliterate and to exterminate. All the Jews, young and old, children women, including children and women in one day. And this is... Haman is really in a certain sense the first anti-Semite. And I want to understand, what is this anti-Semitism? What is it? How does it happen? Why does it happen? There are thousands upon thousands of books on anti-Semitism, the literature on this, is absolutely vast. But all too little of it asks the question, why does it happen, how does it happen, and how can we prevent it happening? It is extremely thin on those particular issues. So what I really want to do is just take you into this phenomenon and try and understand it from within. Trying to understand anti-Semitism is incredibly difficult. Why? Because it consists of a series of contradictions. Jews were hated because they were poor and because they were rich. They were hated because they were capitalists. They were hated because they were communists. They were hated because they were clannish and kept to themselves. They were hated because they got everywhere and infiltrated everything. Voltaire hated Jews because he said they worship a primitive and superstitious faith. Stalin hated Jews because he said they were rootless cosmopolitans who believed nothing. So if anti-Semitism is a stiran minei ube, how will we understand it? And I one many years ago, I said the best way to understand it is to think of it as a virus. I didn't really realize that you have to be very careful how you speak when you're talking to a from group, because I said anti-Semitism is a virus, and they all got up and said, "A virus! Ma' gone shuba." Sorry. I hope you understand that. It's hard to understand Yiddish in an English accent. (laughs) What does a virus do? A virus is a disease of the body politic that attacks individuals or societies and corrupts them from within. Now, the human body has the most sophisticated defense against viruses. Viruses are very clever things. And they pretend to be like you, and you let me in. And then they start destroying you. So the human body has the most sophisticated mechanism of all to detect and prevent viruses. It's called the human immune system. And it learns to recognize something that doesn't really belong here, even though it's pretending to, and it provides antibodies to viruses. How, then, do viruses survive? And the answer is they mutate. And that is really what happened to anti-Semitism. It mutated. It has a beginning in time. It underwent in 2,300 years or 400 years, three mutations, and we are currently living through the fourth mutation. Where do you begin? Um, Obviously, if we're thinking in traditional terms, some would uh, begin uh, with Mitzrayim, with the attempt to destroy Am Yisrael. Others would identify it with Amalek, rational hatred. Some would trace it even earlier. To Esau, <coughs> to which, you know, the twins struggling in the womb, to which God tells Rivka, uh, that there will be an eternal conflict between Jacob and Esau. And so in typological time, you can date it back even before Homer. However, if you step outside of Tanakh, we know that the first anti-Semitic literature we discover is in Egypt under the Ptolemies in the 3rd century before Christianity, 3rd century BCE. There is an Egyptian historian called Manito who writes the first anti-Semitic tract. It is a retelling of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Manito says there were Jews in Egypt, they loved Egypt. Why? Because they were lepers, And Pharaoh gathered them all together and expelled them from Egypt. And from that moment onwards, since Egypt is under Greek rule, that anti-Semitism of Manito spreads into Greek culture and you get a number of anti-Semitic Greek writers and then uh, Latin writers and uh, by and large uh, the Hellenistic literature is critical of Jews number one, I mean Pashut. the Greeks and the Romans just couldn't understand the Jews they could not understand Shabbos you know this? The Gemara says, and Warim Binyilah says, when they sent the 72 elders to translate the Bible into Greek, which was the hardest day for Israel, etc., etc., there were certain sentences that, or phrases that they deliberately mistranslated. One of which was, and they translated that as, God finished on the sixth day. All the work that he has created. Why? Because they knew Greeks can understand a God who creates the world. What they couldn't understand is rest is creative. That they couldn't understand. That incidentally is why ancient Greece burned out and why the Jewish people never burned out. It's very, very important. They they couldn't understand Shabbos. They said Jews keep Shabbos because they're lazy. It was the only interpretation they could give. And so on and so forth. Now... So, anti-Semitism was born in Alexandria, where there was a very Hellenized Jewish community, and so on and so forth. And, in general, we find among the Greeks, despite the fact that they held themselves to be very cosmopolitan and very inclusive, sometimes the people who claim most to be ultra-tolerant are actually the least tolerant of all. I love it, there's a great atheist friend of mine called Richard Dawkins (coughs) who always complains that religion is intolerant (laughs) about which I have to say at least we're not as intolerant as Richard Dawkins. (laughs) So it's very often the secular individuals who claim to have overcome religious prejudice who are guilty of an even more tenacious secular prejudice and that is where anti-Semitism began and that is its its birthplace, historically outside of Tanakh. However, with Greeks with the Greeks and even the Romans, anti Semitism was a form of xenophobia. It was hatred of the outsider, the one not like us. <coughs> and it was not specifically directed against Jews. It was directed against anyone who wasn't a Hellenist. They called the non-Greeks barbarians because they thought they were sheep. You know, they were barbar and, you know, just a a load of sheep. I once said, the Lord is our shepherd. But no Jew was ever a sheep. So, but uh, they couldn't understand this. And so they were generally critical. They were actually racists and, and racism Really began in ancient Greece, and a Jewish historian has written a very interesting book about this. However, you remember what the mafia say to you just before they take you out. Before they, how do they put it? Before they make you sleep with the fishes. You know what they say to you? Nothing personal. Nothing personal. Strictly business. Okay? So, with the Greeks, they hated Jews. But it was nothing personal. Okay? So that is how anti-Semitism begins uh, in Alexandria and from there passes to Hellenistic culture, which is what takes us to the first great mutation. The first great mutation was the birth of Christianity. And this is one of the real tragedies of history. The first Christians were Jews... They believed that Jews would convert en masse to their faith, recognized that the Mashiach would come, had come, and when they didn't, (coughs) they made Jews pay a a terrible price. Jews were blamed for the death of the Mashiach, and in particular, in order not to blame the Romans, because the Romans would have been merciless with the Christians if they found that Christians were blaming them for the death of their Messiah. They shifted the blame to Jews. Anti-Semitism is present in Christianity almost from the beginning. That's the very sad thing. It, makes its, it appears in the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> it gets worse in Luke and John. It is there in, throughout the Church Fathers. And one of the most important events in modern history was when a French historian Jules Isaac, who lived through the Holocaust, wrote a series of books about the history of anti-Semitism in Christianity, and they were read by one of the tzaddikim of, uh, of Umo Zalong, Pope John Twenty-Third, in the early 1960s. And John suddenly realized his church had been guilty of this horrendous anti-Semitism, and set in motion the thing... That changed the Catholic Church's oh, my, attitude, thank you, uh, attitude to the Jews, which was called Nostra Aetate, 1965. By then, he was no longer alive, but and so on and so forth. And there was an entire literature that Jules Isaac has documented called the Adversos Judeos Literature, an entire literature dedicated to attacking the Jews. And that was. Uh, Mutation number one, when anti-Semitism ceased to become generalized hostility to people not like us and became up close and personal specifically to Jews who did not recognize the Messiah and came from their ranks. That was the first mutation. The second mutation we can date reasonably approximately to 1096, to the start of the first crusade. When Jews on their way to liberate Jerusalem for Christianity stopped on the way, went out of their way to massacre Jewish communities in Worms, Worms, uh, Mainz and Spire. We still remember those in the keynote that we say on Tisha B'Av and so on. And until then, Jews had been hated because they weren't Christians. But from the 11th century, we begin to find Jews hated. Not just as non-Christians, but as a demonic force of evil. The Satan, the Antichrist. And Jews are, in some mystical way, responsible for every bad thing that happens in the world. For desecrating the host, poisoning wells, spreading the plague, and worst of all, the blood libel. If a child was found missing, dead, Jews were blamed for killing children to use their blood to make matzes for Pesach. I have sadly to acknowledge that the first blood libel happen, happened in England. England was the birthplace of the blood libel from where it spread to the world. The first blood libel was in Norwich in 1144. And it continued and sadly, really tra- sadly, tragically, In the early 19th century, Christian anti-semitism was taken and infected Islam. And it happened in this way. In the early 19th century, Maronite and Coptic Christians took the blood libel to Egypt and to Syria. There were several blood libels in the early 19th century in Egypt... But the most famous was in Syria. It was the Damascus blood libel of 1840. And it continues to this day. In 1983, the Syrian defense minister, Mustafa Tlas, published a book called The Matzah of Zion, the Syrian defense minister, saying that Israelis kill Arab children to use their blood to make matzah on Bezat. And it was, and remains to this day, a bestseller. So, and that of course came into Islam through Christianity. And here is um, uh, uh, that that was the second mutation from seeing Jews as not Christians and bad because of that to seeing Jews as responsible for all the evil of the world. Mutation three, again, we can date quite precisely. In 1879, a German journalist, William, Wilhelm Marr, Coins a new word. Does anyone know what word he coined? Anti Semitism. Extraordinary. If we think anti Semitism comes all the way from Homon or Manito, how come nobody had a word for it before? And the answer is quite simple, because anti Semitism was, in a very real sense, a new phenomenon. That's what I mean by calling it a mutation. What was it? Jews were no longer hated because of their religion. They were now hated because of their race. And that was the terrifying thing. We find this emerging in the 19th century in France, in Germany, in Austria. Jews hated because of their race. Had this ever happened before? Anyone know? It's very interesting. It had happened very briefly before. It was an extraordinary story. You know that Spain had its Kristallnacht in 1391. It expelled Jews in 1492. So for 101 years, Jews in Spain lived under the most horrendous persecution. And some Jews converted. That's the terrible thing. They became the Conversos or the Anusim. Uh, The Spanish called them the Moranos. Some of them kept Judaism in private. And that is why the Inquisition was started, to check that nobody was practicing Judaism in private. However, others actually became Christian. They didn't keep Judaism in private. And they became... What were known as the new Christians. Now what happens if a population of Jews is suddenly introduced into a population? Within a few years, they're running all the businesses, top jobs, the doctors, the judges, you know. They all went to the yeshiva university at the time, they knew how to learn, you know. So all of a sudden, the old Christians, they say, what have we done? We've let all these Jews in, you know. And and they started distinguishing between old Christians and new Christians on the basis of race. And they passed a set of uh, a group of legislative acts called Limpieza de Sangre, Purity of Blood, to discriminate against Jews on racial grounds. So it had briefly appeared before in Spain, but now became the foundation of a new anti-Semitism in Europe. And its epicenters in the 19th century weren't just Germany. Its real epicenters were in Paris and in Vienna. In Paris there was of course the Dreyfus trial. But even before the Dreyfus trial in 1880 uh, uh, a writer called Louis Drumont had published a book called La France Juive saying the Jews are running France and it became a bestseller and remained a bestseller until 1945. And as you probably read in your papers, two weeks ago, Sunday, two weeks ago, there was a riot, um, a mass demonstration in France, in Paris, in support of the comedian Diodone Mbala Mabala, in which French, in which yet again was heard in Paris, Jews don't think you control France. Or the fact that everyone else gets away with insulting everyone else, but this guy insults Jews and suddenly gets banned, that is a proof that Jews are running France. So if there is one thing we learn from history, it is that we learn nothing from history. And of course, in Vienna, uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, where there was a deeply anti-Semitic man called Karl Luger, and it was in Vienna that Hitler learned his anti-Semitism, not in Germany. And again, we ask um, <clears throat> well, etc., etc. Et we are now living through the fourth mutation. And what makes this anti-Semitism different from other anti-Semitism's? The answer is it focuses not on religion, not on race. It focuses on nation. It is directed against the Jews as a sovereign nation in the land and state of Israel. That is something new. Anti-Zionism is the new anti-Semitism. Not every criticism of Israel is anti-Zionism, but anti-Zionism is the form of the new anti-semitism. Second, its epicenter is not in Europe, it's in the Middle East. But third, and this is the really difficult one, what is different is the logic given for the new anti-semitism. And here I have to explain something that's quite difficult to understand. You and I may think it's easy to hate someone, and it is easy to hate someone, but it is very difficult indeed to publicly justify hating someone. And it is so difficult that in order to justify hating Jews, people have always, in every historical period, without exception, needed to appeal to the highest source of authority in the culture of the age. Because only that would justify uh, hatred of Jews. What was the highest form of authority in the Middle Ages? The church. Religion. And that is why in the Middle Ages, anti-Semitism was religious anti-Judaism. What was the highest source of authority in the 19th century? The highest source of authority in the 19th century was science. Ever since Newton in the 17th century, the highest authority was science. And although we find it hard to believe now, if you go back and read the anti-Semites of the 19th. And 20th century, including the writings of Hitler, and all of his uh, acolytes, you will find that anti-Semitism is justified by them on the basis of two sciences that we now know not to be sciences at all. Number one, the so-called scientific study of race. That's how anthropology was done in the 19th century, that humanity is irretrievably divided into races, some of whom are better than others. And number two, the so-called science of social Darwinism. Namely, the society runs according to the same rules as biology. And just as biology, the strong survive by eliminating the weak, so uh, nations survive. Uh, social, races survive by I- I- eliminating the weak. And that is uh, why the 19th century anti Semitism was racial. Today, uh, we're scientific. Today, what is the highest form of authority? Pardon? Pardon? The highest form of authority today, since the Holocaust, since the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, the highest source of authority is human rights. There's no question. You want to justify something, you have to justify it by reference to human rights. That is why... In the notorious United Nations Conference against, in inverted commas, racism, held in Durban one week before 9-11, the State of Israel was singled out by human rights NGOs for the five cardinal sins against human rights. Apartheid, racism, attempted genocide, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. Those five sins, one, I mean, they're all mad. They're completely and absolutely mad. But, if you want to justify hatred, you have to do it by reference to the highest source of authority and therefore you have to justify it by reference to human rights. Now, I therefore lived through this situation. I don't know, I was a chief rabbi in those days. what a relief it is no longer to be a chief rabbi. (laughs) I had to face this, and I had to be very honest. I had to be very, very honest indeed, because you know, we persuaded Romano Prodi already in early 2003 to hold a conference on anti-Semitism in the headquarters of the European Union in Brussels, and I didn't think they were getting it at all, and I made a speech then which went as follows. Jews cannot fight anti-Semitism alone. The victim cannot cure the crime. The hated cannot cure the hate. It's not our problem. We're not the anti-Semites. It's your problem. And that is why I said, I lead the fight so that Christians can be free to live their life as Christians anywhere in the world. I need you Christians to fight for The right of Jews to live without fear anywhere in the world. I lead the fight, and I really did. We started this in 2002. I got the Jewish students in Britain to lead the fight against Islamophobia. I said, we will lead the fight against Islamophobia, but we need you Muslims to lead the fight against Judeophobia. And indeed, out of that speech came an organization called the Coexistence Trust, which is Jews and Muslims fighting Islamophobia and anti-Semitism together. But I really had to find a way of talking about anti-Semitism that speaks to non-Jews as much to Jews. That's the problem, because we know the problem, but we cannot solve the problem. And if we try to solve the problem, we will make the most horrendous mistake. Let me tell you, Nineteenth-century Jewry collectively made a mistake that is terrifying. If we had been there, we probably would have made the same mistake. Listen carefully. In the nineteenth-century, Jews began to believe that Jews are the cause of anti-Semitism. And Jews are not the cause of anti-Semitism, Jews are the objects of anti-Semitism. And those are two very different things. Jews in Germany said, why we hate it? Because we're different, so let's stop being different. We will, uh, we're different, we eat different foods, let's abolish the dietary laws. We keep Shabbos on a different day, let's move Shabbos to Sunday. We get married and divorced in a different way, let's abolish the whole of Evaniahs. Let's just be like everyone else. And the result was, anti-Semitism was not diminished one millimeter, and Jews lost their own inner strength to resist. So we must never, ever believe that Jews are the cause of anti-Semitism. However, if we want to go back and understand anti-Semitism, then the answer lies in the verse with which I began. Yeshno am echad, beno amim, shonot mikolam. There is a certain people who are different from everyone else. That is why Jews are hated, because we're different. Anti-Semitism is the paradigm case of dislike of the unlike. And you will say, but everyone's different. Every nation is different. And it's true. Every nation is different. But only Jews throughout history consistently insisted on the right to be different, the duty to be different, the dignity of difference. They were the only people over the long haul of history who refused to assimilate to the dominant culture or convert to the dominant faith. And now we have to take a further move. And that is this. Difference is what makes us human. And never was this put better than by Hazal in the fourth, in the Mishnah, in the fourth chapter of San Sanhedrin, when they said, when a human being makes many coins in the same mint, they all come out the same. God makes us all in the same image, His image, and we all come out different. It is our differences that mean... <clears throat> That every one of us is unique, none of us is exactly like anyone else, even genetically identical twins only have 50% of their attributes in common, and because each of us is unique, none can be substituted for anyone else. That is what makes every nefesh achat ke Olam malei, that make, is what makes each of us a universe, because we are irreplaceable, and that is what makes human life sacred, the fundamental axiom of Judaism. And that is why I had to explain this to non-Jews. An assault on Jews is an assault on our humanity a country or a world that doesn't have room for Jews, doesn't have room for humanity. And that, frankly, is why we were hated. Let me be very blunt with you. If we believe that every single being is, human being is sacred, then we will never abandon our difference in order to fit in. So when there were tyrannies and totalitarianisms, it was the Jews who stood up against them and insisted on the right of freedom and the dignity of the individual. And that leads to some of our worst habits and some of our highest virtues. We're going to read in two weeks' time, Parshas ki and Moshe Rabbeinu is going up the mountain to pray for forgiveness. for the golden calf, and he utters the most inexplicable sentence in the whole of Tanakh. He says the following. He says, uh, anyone remember what he says? Because my notes... (laughs) If I found favor in your eyes, please be in our midst, ki he Amkish Because this is a stiff-necked people, the Salat al-Adoninu al-Khadozenu al are Now, work it out. Is the fact that we're a stiff-necked people a reason to forgive us? It's a reason not to forgive us. He should have said, Afalpi, Despite the fact that we're a stiff-necked people, forgive us. Nonetheless, and of course some people say that's what the word Ki means in that verse. The Ramban says... Moshe Rabbeinu de- de- delivered a really chutzpah speech <laughs> saying, Rabbanu Shalom, you know, if you're away for one minute we'll be killing each other and making our idolatry because we're so difficult we need the teacher to be in the class the whole time. So please be close to us because we need you guys. Nobody else can control them. Uh, but there was a wonderful rabbi who was in the Warsaw Gatow who fought in the Warsaw ghetto uprising. His name was Reb Yitzchak Nisimba. And he said, this is what Moshe Rabbeinu said to Agarush Barak. He said, Rebbono what is today the Jewish people's greatest vice will one day become their greatest virtue. They may find it hard to bow down to you, even when you've showered everything on them. But in future, when ne- conquerors and tyrants and emperors want to them to bow down to them, Jews will never bow down. Because if you have a stiff neck, let me tell you guys, you shouldn't have a stiff neck. It's terrible. I have one. It's very hard to bow down. And that, of course, is the story of Purim which began with the phrase, Mordechai, lo yichra v'lo Mordechai was the one guy who wouldn't bow down to Homo. And if there is to be freedom in this world, the world needs the nation that taught us that every life is sacred, that God gives us each culture and each religion the right to be different and that we must never bow down to those who would set themselves up in God's place. And that is why we were hated, but that is why the world needs us. Therefore, since antisemitism is hatred of difference, and since difference is essential to our humanity, anti-Semitism always begins with Jews, But it never ends with Jews. It wasn't Jews alone who suffered under Hitler. It wasn't Jews alone who suffered under Stalin. And it will not be Jews alone who suffer under the theocratic Republic of Iran. We are the the front guard of humanity here. And anti-Semitism is not a crime against Jews. It is a crime against humanity. And that has been my case for the last 10 years in Britain. And that is how Britain became the first country where the fight against anti-Semitism is led by non-Jews. By British parliamentarians, by the Home Secretary and the Secretary of State for Communities, and by the Prime Minister. And every Prime Minister since the beginning of this round of anti-Semitism, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, has got up in front of thousands of people and said these words, Jews will never be left to fight anti-Semitism alone. And we have taken this message so far into Britain, not just at the top, but at the bottom also, (coughs) that in Britain, uniquely, the government provides the funding for every single school in Britain, without exception, secular school, Christian school, Jewish school, Muslim school, to send two children and one teacher to Auschwitz. And every school in Britain observes Holocaust Memorial Day on January the 27th. So we have the fight against anti-Semitism led by non-Jews because it is not not Jews who cause anti-Semitism. It is anti-Semites who cause anti-Semitism. And that is the responsibility of society as a whole. There is one question left, and I end with this story. What should we do as Jews to fight anti-Semitism? And I'm going to give you an unexpected answer, but it's a very important one.
1: And I learned this
0: from a Haredi Rov in Manchester. Actually, Manchester just is Haredi, but it's it's a very (laughs) holy city. And it does some wonderful things. And I don't know, the, the young people here won't remember this at all, but some, now easy becomes a cut, I remember this. Uh, in the late 1980s, when the former Soviet Union was beginning to open up, it was the era of Perestroika and Glasnost, and for the first time in 70 years, Jews were free to be Jews but it had a downside because anti-Semites for the first time in 70 years were free to be anti-Semites and anti-Semitism began to reappear in Russia at the end of the 80s and one of our Rabbonim from Manchester was out in Moscow helping to rebuild Jewish life and while he was there a young girl came to see him in her late teens and she was shaking and she told the rabbi All my life, I never spoke about being Jewish. Nobody thought I was Jewish. We didn't discuss it. And nobody said anything. Now that I'm Jewish, when I go in the street, people shout at me, Jew! Jew! What shall I do? And the rabbi was a big, had a big beard, and a big black hat, and a long capotter, He turned to the young lady and said, The way I look, people probably don't mistake me for an Episcopalian. (laughs) And yet he said, In all these months I've been here, no one ever shouted out, Gide, Gide, why do you think that is? And the young lady thought for a bit and gave this answer. And it is so true. She said, because they know if they shout out the word Jew at me, I will take that as an insult. But if they shout out the word Jew to you, they know you will take that as a compliment. If we want to fight anti-Semitism, let us walk tall and proud as Jews, and let us work with all humanity to banish hatred forever. Amen.